Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, November 27th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds and inquiringshow.talmer.com or on Twitter at inquiringshow and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by Mac Weldon. When I think about what it is that I need to get my loved ones over the Christmas holidays, the one thing I don't usually think about is underwear. But I have to say that I had a pretty good time on the Mac Weldon site searching for men's underwear. Um, For one thing, their models are very good looking, uh, but there are also lots of nice options. And why, you might ask, would I even consider Mac Weldon holiday packs for my loved ones? Well, it turns out that the company believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. So I'm not a huge fan of shopping, just being able to go on their website and pick some essentials that I know my loved ones will use and enjoy um, makes their makes the experience pretty easy. Now, all of their products are naturally antimicrobial, which means they're not stinky, which is awesome because, of course, I want to be close to my loved ones and not stinky loved ones. And if you don't like your first pair, you can keep it and they'll still refund you because, of course, if you buy underwear, generally you can't return it. Thank goodness for that. So not only does Mac Weldon's underwear, socks, and shirts, not only do they look good on the models, but I'm pretty sure they're going to look good on the people for whom I'm going to buy them. So go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using promo code MINDS. And this episode is sponsored by Loot Crate the subscription box for the geek, gamer, and or nerd in all of us. For less than 20 bucks a month, you get six to eight items of gamer and pop culture licensed gear, apparel, collectibles, unique one-of-a-kind items, and more. So make sure to head to lootcrate.com slash mines and enter code mines to save $3 on any new subscription. This year thus far, there have been crates featuring some exclusive items from Star Wars and Voltron, as well as some epic geek apparel from your favorite shows. A crate all about strategy games, a crate all about covert operations, and there is only more awesomeness to come. Remember, you only have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So go to lootcrate.com mines and enter code mines to save three bucks on your new subscription today. How would you prioritize dangers to humanity's continued existence? I know that's 
a really big existential question, but it's a fair one. How do we prioritize things like climate change or earthquakes or or natural disasters or, you know, man-made threats like nuclear weapons across each other mm. in terms of what we spend money on? Well, I guess I would say probably man-made me- weapons are the most imminent threat because they're here. And man, to... man is feeble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. And uh, clearly we have issues in this world. When it comes to human conflict, uh, two, I would say climate change, because it's imminent, if not already here. Um, and then there's like, you know, a whole plethora of other potential crazy problems, like what killed the dinosaurs. Yeah, what if we have ignored a threat? Uh, one that's often talked about in scientific circles is the dangers of asteroids, which our friends the dinosaurs succumb to, a- according to latest research. The Earth and Moon are both scarred with tons of remnants of these asteroid impacts. So we know they happen, but we don't necessarily know how frequently they're going to happen in the near term, meaning the next 20 to 30 years or even 100 years. And just a few weeks back, NASA uh, identified a new asteroid, 2015 TB145, a 400-meter-wide asteroid that flew by the Earth. It was detected basically on October 10th, and it flew by on October 31st, which is, you know, a three-week window from when it flew by. That being said, it flew by beyond the moon's orbit. It was about 300,000 miles away. But if that size asteroid hits the Earth, like, no more life on Earth. That is a massive asteroid that will probably devastate um, all sorts of life across the planet, uh, humanity um, uh, included in that. So when it comes down to this, we don't really have a tracking net for all of these asteroids. And there are millions of them that are in orbit around the Earth and in this solar system that have the potential of coming in contact with the Earth. But wait a minute. I remember interviewing David Morrison, who's, you know, the father of astrobiology and you know, at NASA. He's, he, he, for a long time, ran the website Ask an Astrobiologist. And I remember feeling in that interview that, yeah, this is a possibility, but it's pretty unlikely. And if it happens, we'll probably have a little bit of a window. And so we, it's not really something that should keep us up at night. Yeah, I wanted to find out more myself, because uh, I don't think there's a, the danger around it is the same as earthquakes here in the San Francisco Bay Area for where we live, for example. Or even in Seattle, apparently. Yeah, exactly. But there's still some sort of prevalence here. And uh, moreover, we just don't know how many are on a collision impact because we haven't studied it extensively. Uh, So this week, I talked to Ed Liu. He's a former astronaut and CEO of the B612 Foundation, which is a nonprofit that's now dedicated to putting up an asteroid detection satellite that would be in sort of a uh, between Earth and Venus orbit to actually look back towards, uh, towards asteroids that are orbiting the Earth to predict which ones might be on a collision course with multi-year uh, notification timelines instead of multi-week. So you're saying that his entire nonprofit is geared towards putting up one satellite that will let us know whether or not there's an asteroid that's going to hit us. Well, it's not necessarily, I mean, they have one mission that is focused on launching this satellite, but I think it, it's generally advocating for satellite detection as a priority for a number of different groups to look at. Because the threat of such a thing uh, could be devastating if we don't have enough time to track them. Hmm. So that's going to be our warm, uplifting interview for the week. 
anything catch your eyes in the news? Well, it is Black Friday. Black Friday, one of my favorite holidays of the entire year. <laughs> so, yeah, one of the things that have been catching my eye are all the advertisements I'm getting from, you know, all the merchants with whom I have given shared credit card information and email addresses. And they've been telling me what kind of sales they have. So I actually wanted to take this opportunity to remind our listeners of some of the irrational decisions that we make when presented with different opportunities I to shop. I thought that's my credit card statement, is the <laughs> irrational decisions I make. Yeah, so this is just a word of warning, a little bit of sobriety as you go out and do all your shopping, be it in-store or cyber or on Giving Tuesday to all the nonprofits that need your help. Before you dive in, I think this is a uniquely American endeavor. First of all, we have to acknowledge that. I mean, we're having American Thanksgiving this week. And yes, but let me just say that now in Canada, there is Black Friday shopping. Ugh. I mean, we don't celebrate Thanksgiving in November. We celebrate it in October. And the, and the origin of this, for our listeners who may not know, is that this is the retail shopping day that was uh, most associated with many retail stores going into the black for that year. Yeah. And that's where the origin of the name is. And now it's turned into an unofficial consumer holiday of sorts that is, um, uh, I think, exhibits some of the worst of mankind here in the U.S. <laughs> in terms of behavior. Absolutely. But Thanksgiving, even though I'm Canadian and it wasn't really a big deal in Canada when I was growing up, quickly became my favorite holiday when I moved to the U.S. And that's because there's awesome food and there are no gifts that you need to worry about. And, you know, there are no services that you need to go to. You just get to hang out with your friends and give thanks. And I think it's awesome. Um, so I love Thanksgiving. And I always make a big deal out of it. But yeah, I Black Friday has always been a bit of a conundrum for me. So tell me about the things so I should me, be looking out as a as a as a avid shopper. So I wanted Friday. to start out with one of my favorite old time studies from 1977. This is the famous Nisbet and Wilson pantyhose study. Uh, and so what they did is they took uh, four pairs of pantyhose and they laid them out in different kind of you know orientations onto a table in a department store, and they had people come by and asked them which one they would buy. And all four pairs were identical, so there was no difference between each of the four pairs. And they found that people preferred the pairs on the right side of the table. So 40% of the people who, you know, picked the pantyhose would pick the ones that were the rightmost. Um, 31% picked the next ones over. Only 12% of people actually picked the leftmost pair of pantyhose. So Nisbet and Wilson were scratching their heads. And they, of course, they asked people, why did you pick this particular pair of pantyhose? And no one, except possibly one participant who happened to be a cognitive psychology student, uh, said that it was because they were on the right-hand side of the table. They made up all kinds of reasons. You know, this particular pair of hose is softer or has better quality or is a nicer color or something, which clearly is cannot be true, even though that maybe that's how they justify their choice, because there was no physical difference between any of the hose. So do retailers actually use some of the, uh, use this psychological, study to actually inform where they put merchandise? I'm sure they do. I don't know if they use it overtly, but I certainly know, having worked for a major corporation that sells clothing and a number of different brands, I do know that they think very carefully about where it is that they put the items that they want to sell. And they know on the tables, for example, are the items that they think will be the best sellers that people will just pick up and buy and not even necessarily try on. And there's a whole psychology about where people place their merchandise. So if you are going shopping in into a physical store, 
just keep an eye out for that. You know, watch where it is that you're heading and what it is that you're preferring and make sure that you're preferring it because of some intrinsic value that, uh, you know, is, is along with the item rather than just the fact that it's on the right hand side of the table. Just another reason left-handed folks die earlier. Even retail <laughs> stores aren't set up for them to be victorious. Well, I don't know about that. But anyway, the next thing I wanted to talk about is one of my favorites um, by Dan Ariely, um, who is a behavioral economist. And he noticed that TheEconomist.com was selling subscriptions at one point on their website. And he noticed that if you just bought TheEconomist.com subscription, that is online only for one year, you'd pay $59. If you bought the print subscription for one year, you would have to pay $125. But if you bought the print and web subscription, you also only had to pay $125. So when he polled a bunch of people about which they thought they would buy, 84% of his respondents said that they would buy the print and web subscription for $125. Nobody picked the print subscription alone for $125. And about 16% of people picked the cheapest version, which was the, you know, pr uh, online only version for $59. So this suggests that just the mere presence of that print subscription button where it's only the print subscription and it's the same price as the web subscription actually boosted people's preferences for the print and web option. So he calls this the decoy effect. So Give them the worst option possible. <laughs> yeah, he suggests that because the print subscription looks a lot like the print and web subscription, but it's clearly not as good because it's the same price and you only get half of what supposedly you're getting, that people will then bump up their valuing of the print and web subscription accordingly. And he's done this now in a number of different times. So as a kind of control um, you know, study, he looked at, um, he, he just presented people with the options of the online only. So just economist.com subscription for $59 or the print and web for $125. And there he found that 68% of people at the, in, under those conditions would pick the online only and 32% would, would pick the print and web. So you're going from 84% of people picking print and web when you have this print subscription decoy versus 32% of people picking print and web when there is no decoy. Okay, so got so so far, beware the right hand side of retail stores and look out for the decoy. So, and you know what the decoy is? I realized there's a decoy when I was buying a toaster oven, for example. So the, I went to Bed Bath. This and is Beyond. famous. This no, it is like <laughs> yeah, I've, right? Yeah, yeah. And Williams and Sonoma has done the same thing. You have a they first were trying to sell a bread maker, and nobody was buying the bread maker. So what did they do? They brought out an even more expensive bread maker, and all of a sudden the cheaper bread maker started flying off the shelves. And that is because people thought, well, I don't need this really expensive one, but clearly. I need this, you know, less expensive one that is a better deal and so forth. So people who are going to be presented with options on Black Friday, you most certainly will be presented with decoys. So see if you can figure out what those decoys are and don't be fooled. Know how much you want to spend and what you want to get before you leave your house and not simply when you get into the store. The most common Black Friday decoy is to create a scarcity paradox. So have a low end model that is very scarce. So then when it sells out, you're committed to buying something in that realm. But now you can't get the you know, $20 toaster oven. So you have to upgrade to the $35 toaster oven. And we even see that they're doing the same thing in terms of the hours in which the stores are open, right? You know, when when do you need to first show up at the at the store? Google so. actually released a, a map of times. 
<laughs> uh, like a, a chart of times. It's pretty interesting. Uh, but that's for the advanced podcast where you listen to just my mania, where I tell you my how I've mapped out when I'm going to be at stores. So really, you're going to do Black Friday shopping? I do. I'm I'm going to be out starting around 930 on on Thursday night, and I'll get back around. Thursday night? Yeah. I'll get, what? Yeah. Well, I have Thanksgiving dinner at like three. So I have like, I'm going to nap and then just go out. <laughs> it's pretty sad. What are you going to buy? I'll get at home probably at like five or six in the morning or something. What? Yeah, it takes a while to go places. Wow. Oh, yeah. Is this it, like, are you buying like major electronics or like video games or what, what are you buying? A mix of, of things. I'm building a gaming PC and so I'm buying a lot of peripherals for it and a few, yeah, so a mix of like electronics, but this is like the one time of year I get clothes because I hate um, shopping for clothes. So, wow. Yeah. And I look like this. Audio podcast only. It works. Um, well, okay. that, those are some good uh, good tricks. I have a, a science news story. You mean a real science news yeah, story? Yeah, a real one. Um, one of the most important scientific papers in all of history was published on this day. Really? Yeah. It's called The Field Equations of Gravitation. Do you know mm -hmm. what it is? I do not. It was published by an up-and-coming scientist. His name's Albert Einstein. I've heard of him. Yeah. A hundred years ago today, he published that, which laid the groundwork for general relativity. So one of the most important discoveries in all of, of science history because of, of how it unified the nature of our understanding of, of gravity to a certain extent. Now that we know that gravity is not a force, now that it's actually a geometric condition of space-time, that matter warps space-time and, and gravity is the explanation of that warping, that is a profound in terms of our understanding of the universe, you know, predicting the existence of, of black holes, which, you know, we've confirmed, gravitational lensing. In fact, you know, even modern GPS uses general relativity to a certain extent. There's a lot of great stories out there paying homage to uh, to the publication of this piece. Phil Plate, I think, um, wrote a great article about the history of that and a paper that uh, Maxwell also wrote on this day 150 years ago, uh, which laid the groundwork for his equations of light. But I think the New York Times piece does it the best. It also has some infographics that actually explain general relativity, which is an extremely complicated topic. But it's one of those you can point back to a singular paper having a ripple effect that changed the nature of space and time. That is one of those big kind of statements, but this really did. So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Ed Liu. This episode is brought to you by Loot Crate. Would you classify yourself as a geek, gamer, or pop culture nerd? Then this is the subscription box for you. For less than $20 a month, you get six to eight items of gamer and pop culture licensed gear, apparel, collectibles, unique one-of-a-kind items, and more. Make sure to head to lootcrate.com minds and enter code minds to save $3 off any new subscription. Every month there's a different theme and all items are curated around that theme. They're all inspired by classic movie and video game releases as well as pulling from pop culture franchises. Previous crates have included items from franchises like Star Wars, Marvel, The Walking Dead, The Legend of Zelda, and many more. This year thus far there have been crates featuring some exclusive items from Star Wars and Voltron as well as some epic geek apparel from your favorite shows. A crate all about strategy games, one about covert operations, and there is only more awesomeness on the horizon. 
Basically, Loot Crate is like a friend who knows what you love and surprises you with an awesome present every month. You have until the 19th at 9pm Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate, and when the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So go to LootCrate.com Minds and enter code MINDS to save $3 on your new subscription today. Too busy to cook but wish you had the time to cook more often? Well, Home Chef can help you skip the grocery store and avoid binging on expensive takeout. They deliver fresh, high-quality, pre-portioned ingredients so you can eliminate wasted groceries. They are chef-inspired, restaurant-quality recipes that are created in-house by Home Chef's expert chefs to share with you at home. So for example, if you like jerk chicken, you can get their jerk chicken and brown sugar plantains with coconut rice and kales. That sounds pretty awesome to me. Sirloin steak and shishito pepper skewers with miso glazed fingerling potatoes, something I never would think of to do myself. And thyme and rosemary roasted pork tenderloin with apple cider pan sauce and broccoli mash, if you're more of a traditionalist. These are ready cook to cook meals that are delivered in a refrigerated box every week right to your doorstep. So you can cook dinner in around 30 minutes with step-by-step recipe cards that make cooking accessible to any home chef. But with new menus published every week to choose from, 10 dinner options, breakfasts, and more, Home Chef makes things convenient, gives you lots of variety and choice. And the ability to choose what combination of meals you want delivered each week makes it even better. Home Chef offers you the ability to set your own taste profile. So you can choose hearty meat dishes or veggie dishes or gluten-free dishes and the ability to specify any allergies. And every meal is under $10. So give Home Chef a try. Visit homechef.com and use the code MINDS at checkout for a free dinner for two with your first purchase. That's homechef.com, code MINDS. Rediscover home cooking with Home Chef. Ed Lou, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Well, thank you very much. So I have to ask before we get into the details about the B612 Foundation, I love the origin of that name. It it comes from the Little Prince, right? That's right. It's the name of the asteroid that the Little Prince lived on. And how did you decide that that was going to be sort of the the inspiration for for this foundation? Kind of an interesting story. It was when we first founded our organization, it was basically myself, Rusty Schweikart, another former astronaut, uh, Pete Hutt, an astrophysicist from the Institute for Advanced Study, and a guy named Clark Chapman. And we were all sitting around my uh, kitchen table one evening, and uh, they were over for a, for a meeting mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, enjoying wine and beer and dinner. And when we were coming up with the uh, sort of organization that we were now called the B612 Foundation, and we realized that we had to give it a name. And, and Pete said, Hey, because what was the name of the asteroid that the little prince lived on? Because remember, he was always, he was as a child able to see things that many adults would often ignore, even though the most obvious important things were the things that adults somehow or other managed to ignore. And he said, well, I can't remember the name of that asteroid. And we said, well, I know of a, a, a good way to look it up. This was around 2000. I said, there's a brand new search engine you can use called Google that we can look things up on. It's better than anything else. So we looked it up. And that's how we, that's how we ended up picking B612 Foundation for the name of our organization. So you formerly were an astronaut for, you went on a number of missions. How did you go from being an astronaut to being interested in asteroid detection? Okay, well, I uh, have a, a background in astrophysics first off. And I had always been interested in the subject of 
uh, asteroid impacts, even as a little kid, not because of the fact that I was interested in what killed off the dinosaurs. <laughs> and uh, I, I remember my favorite book growing up was uh, a book all about dinosaurs. And, you know, it ended with, you know, how did the dinosaurs die off? And, and we don't know. And I remember the day actually when I was in my office over at Stanford as a graduate student and uh, one of the other grad students came in and said, hey, uh, they found the crater that caused the, uh, the extinction of the dinosaurs. By then, we had all sort of known about the theory that, that an asteroid could have wiped out the dinosaurs, but they found the smoking gun. They found the crater that's underneath the uh, Gulf of Mexico. And then many years later, I ended up as an astronaut, and uh, I would uh, love to look down at... Uh, the uh, the Earth and, and look for craters because there are a number of craters that are large enough that you can see them from space on Earth. Uh, but then you would always look at the Moon and then look at the Earth and look back and forth between the two. And at some point it dawns on you, hey, you know the the Earth actually has more asteroid impacts than the Moon. It's bigger, it has stronger gravity, it actually has slightly more. And you look at the the record of the the asteroid impacts on the Moon. You know it's covered in craters, and you realize, well, okay, well the Earth, you know, you understand that weather and oceans and plate tectonics, all those things erase craters, but the Earth's been hit that many times. And, uh, you know, the, when you take a look at the, the size of the crater that uh, killed off the dinosaurs, you know, it's a tiny little blot on the surface of the Earth. It's only a, not even 200 miles across, okay? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Earth is huge compared to that, right? And that tiny little spot is enough energy to, to kill nearly everything on Earth. Okay, so then you look at the moon and you look at all those huge craters that you can see all the way from the ground here on Earth. And you go, wow, man. The Earth, and you realize the Earth has been hit many, 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 many times by sort of extinction-level events. And uh, it is just a matter of time until the Earth gets hit again by something big. So how does detection work right now? Because there are groups like uh, JPL down uh, in Southern California have, maintains a, a database of, of near-Earth objects that are coming by. How do we do it at the, at the current moment? Well, at the current moment, what we do is we look uh, from telescopes from the ground and we look for objects that are moving. Those are, those are asteroids. The ones that are in the inner part of the solar system are called near-Earth asteroids are the ones that can hit the Earth. And, and uh, we, we look with our telescopes whenever an asteroid comes close enough to the Earth. And generally, they have to, they have to come quite close for us to see them from the ground. For the sm- What does quite close mean? Uh, it depends on the size of the asteroid. But for something the size of uh, Tunguska, the one that hit the Earth in 1908, uh, which is only about 45 meters across, it's the size of a small building. Um, you know, and, and it unleashed an amount of energy. It wiped out an area roughly the size of the Los Angeles Basin. Something that size generally has to come within a few million miles of the Earth for you to see it. So that's pretty Which is close. Pretty close. Yeah, given that the, the the size of you know the distance from the Earth to the Sun is about a hundred million miles, so if you think of that as you know only a few percent of that, it's, it generally has to come quite close to the Earth, ten million miles, something like that, for most of the smaller ground telescopes to see them, and that's why it takes a long time using our current telescopes to find these asteroids. Now we found a lot of them. We've been doing this for years. We meaning. Uh, observatories around the world have been looking for asteroids that could hit the Earth. And they found the very largest ones because the, the larger ones are the ones that are easier to find, right? You can mm-hmm. see them from further away. They don't have to get as close before you see them. But um, the, the great majority of asteroids that could cause great damage on the ground are, as of yet, uh, untracked, meaning we don't know their trajectories. 
So this is a both a problem of detection, but also when we detect them based on this, because we're not seeing some of these asteroids till they're very, very close, Yes, which gives us very few options on what we can do with them. Yes. Uh, basically, if you really want to deflect an asteroid, keep it from hitting the Earth, you need to have a lot of warning. And in fact, it almost gets trivially easy to deflect an asteroid when you have year, decades of warning, okay? Because what that means is that that asteroid is still billions of miles of traveling before it hits the Earth. And only a tiny, tiny change in its velocity is enough to keep it from hitting the Earth, which, as you know, is a moving target, right? We are moving through space. So uh, if you have very short notice, if you don't discover something until it is basically um, you know, days or weeks from hitting you, there isn't really much we can do. Uh, and so the whole object of this game is to find these things early, to find them and measure their trajectories, calculate their orbits, and know decades in advance when one of these things is going to hit. So tell us about what the estimates are about the scale of this threat, because it's one thing to say like there's a lot of near-Earth objects, but you know, in my lifetime, there hasn't been very many asteroid hits of the scale well, just, that would be a, just three uh, of years ago we had uh, an asteroid uh, explode over the Russian city of Chelyabinsk. Um, it had explosive energy roughly thirty times the size of the bomb dropped over Hiroshima. Okay, so that was not small. Okay, um, and so they do happen, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and again in 1908 we had something even much larger than that. Um, obliterate an area in uh, in the middle of the forest in Siberia, but uh, it's a huge area that it obliterated. So it's, it's not like these things don't happen. Do we have any estimates of what the likelihood of an asteroid oh, impact sure, is going sure, to yeah, be? Sure, yeah, we have estimates. In fact, um, if you ask yourself, uh, during your lifetime, um, what is the largest asteroid you expect to hit Earth during your lifetime? You know what that answer is? I have no idea. Uh, it's a few hundred times the size of Hiroshima. In just my lifetime? Yeah, that's the, the largest asteroid we expect to hit during any given person's lifetime. Wow. Uh, but uh, I guess the, that's shocking to me for a couple reasons. Like, that when I think back through history, I don't know of these, like, Hiroshima-level events being elevated in sort of history. Like, I, I don't know well, about these asteroid impacts happening in the 1800s. And, and, and that's just because um, in 1900, you know, in, you know, in the 1800s, how would anybody find out about it if it happened, if it didn't happen over a, a major European city, mm -hmm. right? Nobody knows about it. Oh, so you're saying because some of these events could happen over, over the ocean, over a areas. desert or something like that. It, it, you know, people weren't tweeting it in 1805, right? <laughs> So, uh, and, and there was no, you know, there was no uh, CNN or Fox or whatnot, you know, cable TV. There was none of that, right? And so it actually has to be, that there's no way, it just, people don't know about these things. So when you factor in uh, the growth in population and sort of the density now, mm -hmm. uh, when you take into account what you just said, that, you know, there's a likelihood of a Hiroshima-style event. No, no. Uh, hundreds of times larger than Hiroshima. Okay, hundreds, hundreds of, of times. times larger. Which is hard to even imagine yeah, what that looks many like. megatons. Yeah, what are the chances that's going to happen over a populated area? It doesn't matter if it happens a, a, in the actually, ocean or not. Actually, small, because mm -hmm. most of the Earth is unpopulated. So, with larger likelihood, the next major asteroid to hit isn't going to be over a city. 
But then again, it may not be, right? And the question is really, do we want to take a proactive stance on this, right? Because this is really something that's actually um, fairly cheap to do, uh, to solve completely. And uh, that makes it an interesting problem because it's, it's the only sort of global scale, potentially global scale, natural disaster uh, that has almost a completely technical solution. We can do it. And for a relatively inexpensive amount of money. I mean, you're talking about roughly the cost of, for instance, my local school district bond here in San Jose. It's roughly the cost of protecting the entire earth from this point forward from asteroid impacts. So let's so. actually talk about some of the technical details of the detection. How does detection work in, in your sort of model? Because you're talking about putting a satellite up in the, in the air, the, the Sentinel mission, uh, to actually detect these. How does that satellite actually work on detecting the asteroids? Well, all, all of these detection methods work the same. Mm-hmm. Our design, Sentinel, other designs, there are, there are plenty of other telescopes, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, and they all work the same. You look for objects that move. Okay, you see them in the sky. We track them for over some period of time. You see it move from position to position. And you calculate its orbit from that. The same way we calculate the orbit of Mars or the orbit of Venus. Okay, and it, they follow a particular uh, set of laws called orbital mechanics. Because we basically gravity of the sun and, and um, you know, these things orbit the sun. And you calculate their orbit. And, and doing that, we can tell you where that object will be off in the future. In the same way that you can look up on tables the location of Mars, pick a date 20 years from now, right? And, mm-hmm. and you can look it up. You don't find it surprising that you can look up on a table where Mars will be mm-hmm. on your birthday in 2040, right? Well, you just, and where that comes from is because we, you observe Mars with telescopes and you, you calculate the, the future location based upon that. That's exactly what you do with asteroids. Now, if you can build up a big enough, if you can get that same kind of tracking on all the asteroids that, that could hit the Earth, then you could look forward and see if any of them is actually going to hit the Earth. And uh, if one of them does, then we can do something about it. And to me, that's the amazing thing, right? Not that this danger is something that, you know, hey, we're all going to die. This is absolutely not a panic thing. This is absolutely not a, you know, the world is ending thing. This is an opportunity to do something incredibly useful using our space technology. I mean, I look at it the other way around. What is the, what is all this astronomy and space science and physics and you know knowledge about uh, space science for if it's not to protect the Earth, right? I mean, we are actually on the verge of being able to protect this planet from being hit by large asteroids from this point forward. That's fairly amazing, and this is going to happen in our lifetimes. The the one thing that that strikes me though is that when you're talking about you know planets and tracking planets, there's you know, very small number of planets. When we're talking about asteroids, there doesn't make any difference. They still follow exactly the same laws of orbital mechanics. But can they one telescope the sun. like track that many objects? Because like, what what are the estimates on total number of asteroids? Right, you're looking are, at about a million larger enough to destroy a city, but you mm-hmm. don't track. It's not like I have to look at them continuously. You, you, it's mm-hmm. not like you think. Do we are, do our telescopes? Do we measure the orbit of or the position of Mars continuously? No. no, we measured it over a period every once in a while. You look at the position. At this time, it's at this position. At this time, it's at this position. At this time, it's at this position. And you use our knowledge of orbital mechanics to calculate its orbit. So even though there's a million asteroids in the sky, a single telescope can make a huge difference. It can make a huge difference. Now, you do want telescopes in different locations mm-hmm. because that allows you to track asteroids. If you, for instance... 
we already have telescopes here on Earth, and we're getting better ones. There are mm -hmm. some very big telescopes that are going to come online in the next few years that are going to track asteroids. Now, if you put, um, like we suggest, Sentinel out there in the solar system in a different location, it sees a different region of space than those telescopes here on Earth. And that allows you to see asteroids, uh, you know, when it moves away from the Earth, you can pick it up from another location. Okay, so the combination of the two allows you to observe these things over longer periods of time and therefore get a much more accurate track on these things, okay? Because accuracy is very, very important here because if, you're, if you can only observe an asteroid for a small period of time, then there's a bit of uncertainty in where it's going to be off in the future, right? And that uncertainty grows the further, the longer in the future I am trying to predict its location. And um, the end result is that many of these asteroids you will find actually cross right, you know, in front of, are going to cross uh, right through Earth's orbit and might hit the Earth. And you have to ask, it, but if your uncertainty in the position is large enough, you, you, all you can say at that time is that that particular asteroid has so-and-so probability of hitting Earth on this date. So even though we're talking about launching a, you're talking about launching a satellite into space, you see this as a network. Like uh, there'll be oh, oh, still ground-based telescopes oh, absolutely that are it's a feeding into yes. this. Uh, in fact, the, the, the largest ground-based observatory for finding asteroids is, is going to come online in roughly seven years. It's called the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. And it's going to find an awful lot of asteroids too, okay? And um, uh, there are lots of telescopes currently on the ground that are, are currently finding asteroids. They'll be mostly superseded by the LSST telescope in seven years. Um, but uh, th this is re you really need to think of it, as you say, as a network of telescopes. So can you explain in a little bit more detail why we need one in orbit then? To do this, why why sort of ground based surveys aren't enough to do to create enough of a detection net? Well, again, um, the longer you go without seeing an asteroid, the 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 longer it uh, you know you don't gather new information, you don't you don't improve your orbit. So consider an or an asteroid that is orbiting the sun every let's call it one point one years. Okay, now the Earth goes around the sun every one year, right? So when that asteroid comes by the Earth and we spot it, say, with LSST, how long does that asteroid, which is going around the sun, uh, how long till it next comes by the Earth and we can see it again? It's going around the Earth every 1.1 years. So for, for roughly the next 10 years, it's going to go towards the other side of the sun, right? And so about every 10 years, and in about 10 years, it'll come back, okay? Let's say that one of these asteroids has a chance of hitting the Earth. You measure that when it goes by. You, all you know is it has a chance of hitting the Earth. Now, now you got to wait 10 years or so until you can know for sure if that thing's going to hit the Earth. That's bad, right? Because all, all you have is a probability on that thing. That's why it's good to have another vantage point somewhere else in the solar system. And that's what Sentinel... Because Sentinel, the space telescope that we've designed for finding asteroids, orbits the sun interior to the Earth. So it's, a, it's about near the orbit of the planet Venus uh, around the sun. Um, and that means that it uh, goes around the sun about every eight months. So it's going to have a really different view of the sky. Different than, part of the sky than, mm -hmm. or different part of the solar system mm -hmm. than the Earth. When you, you said earlier that this is relatively cheap for us to do. When mm -hmm. you say it's cheap, like what, what's the actual number? 
Well, um, let me put it as a percentage of NASA's budget, mm-hmm. uh, about a quarter of 1%. So one four hundredth of NASA's budget would pay for this. And w- one thing that strikes me is when we, anytime we talk about launching a satellite into space, mm-hmm. um, those satellites now in, in this day and age, just because of economics and, and scientific utility, must have multiple missions associated with it, almost every no, single one. They Do don't have agree? to. No, 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 no. In fact, that's not true at all. Mm-hmm. Um, a large number of spacecraft are single use. They do one thing. So do you see Sentinel as being that single use or do you see multiple well, potential uses? We for look it? at it as being for the purposes of planetary defense, mm-hmm. not pure science. Mm-hmm. Okay, Its job is to find asteroids that could hit the Earth. Okay, And that um, doesn't mean you can't do good science off of it. But when you, in the end, you always have to optimize every spacecraft for doing doing something, right? What is it going to be best at? And we are optimizing its design for protecting the Earth from being hit by asteroids. Now, all satellites have a life, like a mission will have a life. Mm-hmm. How, what would be the life of a uh, of this particular okay. satellite? All satellites have a design life. Yeah. Well, how long they really last is unknown, right? We can we know that based yeah. on how rovers have operated exactly. on Mars. Exactly. 90-day lifetimes, and they're running 10 years later, right? Yeah. So, um, what we've designed Sentinel for is a six and a half year life. Okay. How long will it really last? Who knows? It doesn't have consumables that get used up. So it could go much, much longer than, but uh, again, you have to pick a point that says that's my design life. And in that case, it's six and a half years. Is there from a science perspective, a, a lifespan that you need to detect the, the for the asteroid detection part of, of yeah, this. And that's why we chose six and a half years. That's it's six and a half years. It's to meet the design goals of finding the asteroids large enough to cause damage on Earth that are, you know, how long do you need to be out there in order to find them? Now, again, once you know their trajectories, you're good for a long time, right? Because the trajectories, they change slowly and in ways that we understand. Yeah, this isn't Hollywood where some random asteroid's going to no, they don't, come out of left field. And, no, they don't, they don't change orbits like that. They, yeah. they change in orbits in a fairly predictable, not completely, but fairly predictable manner. Now, they, they do on occasion come close to planets, and that changes their trajectory because of the, gra- the, the gravity of those planets will, will shift them. Uh, but that is something that means that roughly every 100 years or so, you, you need to make a, another run at this and, and do another, you know, update all your orbits. But uh, in general, you don't need to, it's not, you don't need continuous monitoring. So de- detection, as you intimated, is just part one. Yeah, the, hard, the hard part. Okay. Yeah, so once we see them, what do we do? Now like, comes, let's say we find an asteroid that's yeah, actually Now I would say it comes the trivial part, deflection. Okay. Deflection is trivial? Yes. Yeah. Hollywood movies are just wrong on this, okay? Just, that's just the way it is, all right? Um, if you ask yourself the question, let's say there's an asteroid out there and it's 20 years from hitting the Earth, how much do I need to change its speed to get it to miss the Earth, Okay. The answer to that turns out to be um, it's, a, it's a tiny, tiny fraction of one mile per hour. It's a few millimeters per second. In, uh, so um, that's the change in the speed you need to give it. So remember, these things are orbiting the sun at um, you know, 60 to 100,000 miles an hour. Okay? And you're going to make their speed 60,000 miles an hour plus 0.001 miles per hour. Okay? Tiny, 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 tiny change in the speed. And what that will mean is that 20 years later, when it gets to the point 
um, where it crosses Earth's orbit, it's still going to cross Earth's orbit. The Earth's no longer there. Okay, because again, the Earth is moving. Mm -hmm. So what do you need to do to change the speed of an asteroid uh, going around the sun by this, uh, a few millimeters per second? And the answer is, in most cases, you simply take a small spacecraft and you run into it. That's it. We've done this for a comet mm -hmm. in year 2005. Just last year, yeah. Uh, no, 2005, we ran into a comet um, oh, at yeah. high speed. Mm -hmm. um, not, not tried to land on it, but actually just ran into it. It was the, for the purposes of exploring what's beneath the surface by opening up a crater. But that has the effect of actually changing the velocity, right? So uh, we know we can do this. And in fact, um, you know, that was done on a larger object. It was, our comets are generally larger than most of these asteroids that we're concerned about. Now, there's a plan to run a test mission. Um, it's it's a, a mission called IDA. And it's a joint mission between the European Space Agency and NASA. It's not fully funded yet. It's in the late study stages. Um, they're hoping to get uh, the go-ahead by the end of next year to actually go and build this mission. Um, and they will actually do a test deflection of a small asteroid, which I think is a great idea. And they're going to do this RAM Just model? Simple ramming it, okay. Mm -hmm. So that's part of it. Now, if the asteroid is particularly large or particularly close or you didn't discover it until, you know, say 10 years ahead of 10 instead of 20 or 30 or 40 or 50, um, uh, you can always resort to nuclear weapons to give it a tiny nudge. You, you don't blow them up. You actually explode near the surface and push them slightly. Same idea. Um, and finally, I should point out that you don't want to just shove the asteroid and hope for the best. In the end, you want to shove the asteroid, measure whether or not you, you push it to the right spot, and make sure that the orbit doesn't come at just the now just the right distance from the Earth so that it comes back and hits the Earth a few years later. Those are called return keyholes. And uh, what you would do is take a small spacecraft and hover near the surface. It's called a gravity tractor. Mm -hmm. And do a fine-scale adjustment. So... So you use the gravity of the ship itself to kind exactly, of... Exactly, to, to essentially tow the asteroid a mm -hmm. tiny little bit. It's not as effective as simply running into it, but it is far more controllable. And so the combination of the two allows you to have a, you know, a big oomph that moves uh, an asteroid, and, and a gravity tracker can also be used to measure accurately the results of that first deflection. And you would go in, measure it, Again, make sure that A, it's not going to hit, and B, that if it, if it is really going to come on a return keyhole, that you, you give it a tiny little bit of an extra nudge in one way or another to make it miss the Earth. So um, you should think of deflections as not being, deflections of asteroids not as a single mission, but as a, uh, a campaign of missions, generally two or more missions to make sure that they don't hit. But in the grand scheme, you still assert that this is trivial compared to the actual detection. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, Hollywood, sorry, it just got it wrong. Okay. <laughs> um, so, you know, 90% of the battle really is in finding these asteroids first. Because remember I said that if you change the velocity of an asteroid by a few millimeters per second, that affects whether or not it hits the Earth. That means that if an asteroid, to know that an asteroid is going to hit the Earth, you need to measure its speed to accurate to within a few millimeters per second. That's the challenge. So I want to talk about the economics because... We haven't done this yet. We haven't put up a, mm -hmm. a detection net yet. You've taken an interesting track in the sense of going with private fundraising. Mm -hmm. 
uh, to help launch a, a satellite to do this. I'm really curious why you took that track instead of working through sort of the engines of, of NASA, as it were. Well, um, the there had been m- many proposals to build various telescope designs for the, over the years to do just this. And when we started the Sentinel mission, uh, none of them were f- had gotten approved, and and they had, and, and it wasn't for lack of trying. Okay, so we took the opposite tack. Well, let's just get started. Okay, and and things have changed greatly since we started. There are now uh, there is now this this telescope LSST that I mentioned that is being built. That's funded by actually the National Science Foundation primarily, and there's even a NASA proposal to build a telescope with some similar capabilities to Sentinel uh, called NeoCam that has become uh, one of five finalist selections for um, a possible selection to flight uh, end of next year. So uh, things have moved along quite a bit. So now we're one of three major telescopes. And I think that's a great thing because here's what's going to happen. Over the next 10 years, um, LSST alone is going to greatly increase the number of asteroids that we can find. And maybe Sentinel or uh, NeoCam will add to that. But at the very least, we're going to have a huge increase in the number of asteroids that we can track. And what we're going to find is that many of these are going to come very close to the Earth. Because there are far more asteroids that come close to the Earth than actually hit. Okay, Think of a bullseye, you know, think of a target, right? That's reasonable to think why they'll be there. What hits in the middle is far less than the area surrounding it, right? We're going to know of many asteroids that are, are going to come close to the Earth. Uh, some of which you may not know for sure if they're going to hit for some period of time. Uh, we're also likely to find some asteroids that are going to actually hit the Earth, and we will know for sure. Okay. Um, and again, these, these are not likely to be the kind of things that sterilize the Earth because the smaller asteroids are more common than the bigger asteroids. But we're going to find some things that are going to hit the Earth. You think that's going to spur interest in, in both funding and just or innovation in well, the area? Well, I, I think we're going to choose this as an opportunity to deflect that asteroid, even if it's not going to hit a city. And again, the chances are it won't, okay? But it'll be a chance to do a practice mission for real on an asteroid that is going to hit the Earth. We could keep an asteroid from hitting the Earth, okay? And I think that is going to be one of the biggest missions of this next century. Think about it, right? I mean, we're going to keep an asteroid from hitting the Earth for real, the the way you say that makes it sound like it's one of the next it's one of the biggest missions of the next century for humanity not just out uh, of space exploration yeah this is not i think it's a demonstration of human beings capability to use science and technology to think ahead do some long-term thinking and to put that science and technology to use to protect our own planet that's tremendous and again, this isn't likely to be an asteroid that's going to be, you know, sterilizing the planet or something like that. But that's a first step. Because in the end, you want to get to the point where you could say, hey, from this point forward, no large asteroids hit the Earth. Right? This is the start of it. Right? This is uh, um, the beginnings of our ability to clear out a zone from the third planet from the sun from ever being hit by large asteroids. Now, over long, 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 long periods of time, you know you you have to solve this problem, right? You know that you can't just say, hey, for the next however many million years, we don't care about this problem. You're going to get wiped out, okay? An asteroid large enough to wipe out civilization happens about every million years. And uh, the beginnings of it will be over the next 
10 years, I predict. So I, I think that's the most amazing part about this whole endeavor is that we as human beings are actually going to slightly alter the evolution of the solar system so that our planet doesn't get hit anymore. Ed Lou, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. So at the first eight minutes of that interview, Kishore, I thought I would never sleep again. You know, uh, he tried to, I think, bring it back a little bit. Like, oh, it's not, I'm not trying to panic people, but here's a reason to panic. Oh, no, no. He was like, look at the moon. There's lots of craters on it. The earth has far more because it's much bigger. Like, that's a reason to panic. But don't worry, we got this. That's what I, that's what I got from that interview. I mean, I did take away the fact that like, an asteroid's not just going to come out of left field and hit us. It's already probably in orbit. The well, one not that's- a big one. Well, I mean, that, tons of little ones might. Yeah, but they're already in orbit. We have the capability of of tracking them down and, and detecting them. I'm not con- convinced exactly how, like what the likelihood of impact is. I don't know where some of those estimates are, are, are coming from exactly. But moreover, there's seems to be a lot of different detection methodologies using the telescopes on land. And he mentioned the big telescope that's going in in Chile. So it's an interesting fight in terms of how do we actually do this? It seems like there's investment in it, and it's relatively cheap in terms of uh, how to do this. I'm just not uh, clear that it's going to be like a a huge priority within NASA for sure. Well, I thought it was interesting how in terms of his, him talking about the expense, he needed to couch it in terms of NASA budget terms, right? Which uh, which I think maybe we should we should coin as a new type of currency. It's like what proportion of NASA's, <laughs> what proportion budget, of NASA's budget? So I looked up NASA's budget and I guess in 2015 it was 17.5 billion. I think there was some talk about Obama raising it to 18.5 billion for for this coming year or this this coming fiscal year. I don't know where that stands politically, but um in any case it's around that. So so that makes his budget or the, or what he thinks is the requirement is what about 437 million 437 million yeah and i think the um reason that you put it in the in that frame of percent of nasa budget is that i think there's two reasons to do that one is to emphasize that maybe nasa should be doing this more with the money that they're spending i think that's probably the primary reason i think the secondary reason is that He's actually trying to raise money privately for this, and I suspect that r- raising money privately for a uh, an orbital satellite it isn't as smooth a a progression as raising money for an app these days. <laughs> and so, probably putting it in that frame references you know how big of a project this is, but um, how little of an overall budget and overall spending that exists in this arena. You know, when he was talking about too, how we can actually then deflect an asteroid, that was one of the most interesting parts of the conversation for me. I can't believe that's trivial. I mean, he thinks it's like, that's the easy problem. The hard problem is finding them. Yeah, Yeah, sure. No problem. Um, but I think he is right that if we are successful at doing that, that's going to dwarf all of the other space explorations that we've been doing. Right. I mean, cause that just, I think, yeah, I think that would just make a huge impact, way more than putting a person up on Mars. I feel like, you know, the sort of global impact of deflecting something that could potentially make our species extinct. Yeah, in in some ways, I I would think that would be more important. I can hear the dynamic Hollywood music coming on as Bruce Willis is walking towards the space shuttle right now. It's not going to be dramatic like that. I understand what you're saying. It's probably going to be unifying. I think investment will be will come in a heartbeat if we detect an asteroid that is potentially on a collision course to Earth. It's just whether or not like we want to invest that money 
for the slightly better detection net that we have now using Earth-based telescopes uh, for a satellite-based one that's going to be able to image stuff that will give us years in advance instead of probably months if we if we catch it at all. It sounds like to me, in talking to him, that he's looking at there's going to be some player in this space, whether it's him, which I get a sense like it might not be them in in some way, shape, or form, that it's going to have to be some form of a public-private partnership well, that's going to launch yeah. a satellite in space. He also didn't seem to think that that was... I mean, he didn't seem disappointed in the fact that it might not be them. I mean, obviously, you know, he was he was talking about this other that's, telescope that was being built, and, you know, he thought that was a great thing. And That's the true astronaut spirit, just wants the problem to be solved. I mean, it is, it is a very astronaut-like mission. It's like, if we put this up there, we'll know for the next hundred years we're safe. Or if we find something, we know how to solve it instantaneously. It's a very engineer mindset. But the other thing that occurred to me is like, what are the political implications of this? Like, let's like who, which country is going to be the one that's going to be responsible for doing the deflecting? And if they screw up and like, let's say like the US is the one who's going to be like, okay, we're going to deflect this asteroid and they like misjudge it. And all of a sudden it like wipes out Russia. (laughs) There's such a weird progression of your logic there. (laughs) We found an asteroid that's going to hit Earth. We misdeflect it. The Russians are gone. Like that is a strange Hollywood progression. I don't think it's well. It is the holiday season. To reality. <laughs> I think there's a few steps in that yada yada yada, and we won't won't need to go into. And I don't think it'll well, go anyway. down like that. It did but, occur to me that there might be political implications about this particular project. I'm I'm actually wondering in, in the more realistic thing is I'm wondering if there is an asteroid impact and like more than likely it hits water if like the video of it images of it actually spur some sort of uh, increased interest in the area like if it's going to actually take something happening before we actually see some some real action in the area. Or if we're going to be proactive, like like Ed's really um, proposing here, yeah, we don't have. Be, a, yeah, it'll depend on the message, how the message is being broadcast, right? We're not real good at being proactive as a species <laughs> against um, potential natural disasters like this. And Are you talking about climate change? This is this is the most natural of disasters, indeed. That's another show. Thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And I'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, which we'd like to point out is what percentage of the NASA budget? Just 1.5 times 10 to the minus 6% of the total NASA budget on an annual basis. So especially Herring Chen, Nick Cadillac, and Sean Johnson, thank you for being our supporters. Inquiring Minds is produced by asteroid enthusiast Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, City Lab, Medium, and The Huffington Post. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chian. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. 
And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.